Well, again, good morning. As the children leave, uh, I'm just part of the reason I'm so excited to be with you is uh, I got to spend some time with our conference, the 150 or so churches that we're a part of on Thursday and Friday. And one of the people I heard talked about this idea of developing faith in the next generation. And what I was struck by was that he said that ministry to the next generation was so simple 30 years ago. In fact, to demonstrate it, he shared a video that we're going to see right now. And it's true. Like, there's something endearing about a simple faith. And his point was that ministry to the next generation 30 years ago was simple. But ministry to the next generation today is complex, often complicated, and sometimes even discouraging. He said in the critical decade between 13 and 23, which for those of us that aren't in between 13 and 23, think about how many life, like major life-altering decisions we made between 13 and 23. <laughs> oh, but the grace of God. <laughs> but he said at the end of that decade, 40 to 60% of our young people haven't just left our church. They have been disengaged from God and from their faith. That's, that's just unacceptable in my mind. And he said that at 23, much of the next generation views their youth group or their student ministry experience like prom, meaning they have pictures of it and they have good memories of it. And when they think back on it, they get a warm feeling. They can prove to people they were there. But at 23, they never want to go back and it has no relevance in their life whatsoever. And even more than that, they said at 23, when much of the next generation at 23, when they drive by a church, they see it as the VFW. Meaning, when they look at it, they go, oh, that's cool. Those people did some awesome things for our country that are really good. I'm really glad that they have a place to gather. I would never think about going there. I love my military friends, but I think the same thing about the VFW. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, our vision at Restoration is that we would join with Jesus to transform communities, that there is something beautiful and amazing and sacred when someone, anyone of any age, when they discover who Jesus is and they decide to live with him and for him, that they find out that they can contribute in ways to the world that would bless others that the world needs, that is awesome. And to think some people just don't have that experience. And I realize that the difference between what we desire in our church community and experience and, and sometimes what we have is vastly different. But I think it makes the reading from today all the more important for our lives, all the more reason to listen to how the first community 
kingdom community, I call it, because they weren't, they weren't even called the church yet. They weren't even called the followers of the way. They, they didn't know how to describe it other than they were part of Jesus, and Jesus said he was bringing this new kingdom. So listen to Acts 2, 41 through 47, as this first community is described. It says that those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts They broke bread together in each other's homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There was something that was beautiful and contagious about that first kingdom community. I mean, what was it that was so contagious? See, when I look at these verses and when I consider them, I think the first thing that might have been so contagious was their bold declaring of Jesus' resurrection and restoration. I mean, think about it. Peter stands up one day. Peter, who, remember, sticks his foot in his mouth in major ways, (laughs) who says, absolutely, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And then when Jesus says he's going to die, He says no and argues with them to the point where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, from high to low. But Peter, after he receives the Spirit, says to crowds of people that have gathered in Jerusalem for this religious ritual, this festival of Pentecost, it's called. It commemorates when Moses was given the law by God, and here God gives the Spirit on that same festival. And these people are filled with it, and amazing things are happening, and they're like, what does this mean? And Peter says, people, you need to repent to turn and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise isn't just for you and your children, but all who are far off, all whom the Lord will call. And the text specifically says that 3,000 people found life, which I used to just think was impressive. But then I started to realize that when the writers of the scriptures put numbers in, it's for reasons. Like, think about when when we think about what the temperature was yesterday, you know, some of us will say, it was 62.8 degrees because we have the ability now in our day and age to calculate that specificity. They didn't really have that ability back then. So maybe there was 3,000, maybe there was 3,027, maybe there was 2,998. My point is that I went to the scriptures and I looked at, well, where else is 3,000 written? Are there any connections to it? Anybody know where else 3,000 was written just for, you know, Bible bonus points or something? Well, ironically, it's in the same scenario where God gave the law to Moses. It's in Exodus 32. So from Exodus 19 or 20 to Exodus 
40, really, to the end of the book. They're at, this, they're at Mount Sinai. God is giving them the law. He's, he's putting together this sacred promise and agreement that is written down on two stone tablets. And as he spends 40 days up on this mountain with God, the people grow restless, and they decide, we don't like that our leader's gone, and we don't know where he's gone. We don't like this God who scares us. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to take all our gold. We're going to melt it. We're going to create a golden calf. We're going to call that God, and we're going to worship it because we can see it, touch it, and control it. Because I never do that with my relationship with God. And that's what they do. And in this moment, when Moses comes down the mountain... He, he gets very incredulous, but he sees Aaron and the people who've run wild. And he, in this moment, he says, whoever is for the Lord, stand with me. And the Levites, the tribe of Levi, they all run to Moses. And they stand with him. And 3,000 people die that day. But this tribe is set apart. This tribe decides we're going to repent, we're going to turn back, we're going to be these people that are marked by who God says we are. The same thing happened in Acts, except 3,000 people found life. They chose to be marked by the resurrection, the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. They chose to be baptized, to be immersed into that community and to be called part of that movement. Just like the Israelites went through the Red Sea and as they went through the Red Sea, they became a new community that took about 40 years to figure out for them because sometimes transformation is long and tedious. But they became that new community. In essence, I think what devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching is, it's about allowing the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to become your identity, to be transformed by that, and to permeate every part of your life in that, to be around people who have that choosing that way of Jesus instead of their old way. And Corinthians says that when they do that, they become a new creation. And I think what happens when we're not devoted to the teachings of Jesus is that we quickly revert to whatever our mindset was before we knew Christ, or if we can't remember that, whatever the mindset of the popular culture is, Whatever the social pressures of the day are, our mind gets, gets just brought over there and then Jesus becomes a fringe part of our existence and we describe our relationship with God in vague or shallow terms. And that's not very contagious in my mind. So maybe their contagiousness was that bold declaring that they made in Jesus Christ. I think another thing that was that just strikes me as I read this passage is this radical inviting and accepting and welcome that happens in this first kingdom community. Listen to how it's described. It says, each person in body, mind, and spirit became filled with reverence and the apostles became filled with signs and wonders. And day by day, they kept on keeping on in one accord in mind, in body, in spirit. The daily and weekly rituals of the temple affected their lives and they continued to meet in homes and they shared and received food with one another and they had great joy with a sincerity and a simplicity for life. They would speak and they would sing about God's greatness and when they did that, they experienced kindness, thanksgiving, and joy 
among this crowd of common people. And the Lord continued his saving, healing, and restoring day by day. That's not exactly how we read the translation, but that's actually how I think it could be translated. There was this unity that happened, and I've always thought, well, of course, they had everything in common. But maybe they did when they were 120. But remember, 3,000 were added that day, and it says 3,120 were one. Now remember, 3,000 people came from other places, had other backgrounds, spoke other languages, and they had probably had different preferences and nuances. So what did they really have in common? I think they were all at this festival doing a religious ritual or routine, and all of them experienced a sacred moment in the midst of that. They saw in the midst of doing religious things that something spiritual and significant could happen in their lives. I think they all needed Jesus, and they recognized that, and they all experienced the Holy Spirit. And, not to be simplistic, but they all needed to eat. So they did it together. That's what I think they had in common and when I hear the description, it, it produces something in me much like the little girl singing the song. If you've ever eaten with someone that, that maybe you don't understand or maybe comes from a different background, and when you share not just food but moments together where you feel connected, I can only describe that as something spiritual and significant where we realize that more than just being humans together, we're humans that are created by God together. I think that's what made it so contagious. And when we don't share, when we stop doing that, I think we easily slide into this isolation, not just from others, but from God, where our prayers become weak, maybe even meaningless, and we can get so focused on our own problems. Or maybe it's just me. But yet, genuine acceptance truly is an act of the Holy Spirit. To, and to affirm someone, to accept someone, doesn't mean we accept everything they do, everything they believe. To accept someone means that we see them as valuable in God's eyes. Sometimes you can do that simply by looking someone in the eye and smiling at them. You're communicating value to another human being. It's what God does with you. Zephaniah 3.17 says that the Lord sings songs over you, that he delights in you, that he loves you. Now, I know there's a lot of places in the Bible that say that our sin separates us from God, that our hearts want to rebel from God. That's true. But there are places over and over and over in Scripture that I think we miss that say, God loves you, that he pursues you, that he's crazy about you, that despite all the things you've done, he still runs after you. Let's not forget that when we're in a place 
where we're not feeling necessarily like we're accepted. So sometimes it's just as easy as a smile, looking someone in the eye. Sometimes it's listening to someone with patience and compassion as they tell you something that's dark or ugly or, or just bad. Realizing, at least what I do, is I realize that anywhere from three to six decisions, I'm anywhere from three to six bad decisions from that, where that person is right there. that makes sense? Did I say that right? Like when I look at someone, when they're telling me something ugly, all I have to do is go, you know, I'm three to six bad decisions away from being in that same place. And it's so much easier for me to look at that person and listen with compassion and patience. It's another way that we accept someone. I think everybody wants to know that they're loved, that they're valued, and that they're not alone. And that's what this first community experienced. And it challenges not just what I, what I say, but how I live. How does it challenge you? And how does it challenge us? Are we inviting and welcoming people into our homes, into our lives, into our faith? You know, if it's a part of your faith, it's not weird to talk about. Just like it's not weird to talk about things that you love. That's why if you spend five minutes with me, you'll know I'll talk about peanut butter or running or camping because I love those things, especially peanut butter. <laughs> uh, and lastly, uh, I'm just struck by the joy and generous sharing of that first kingdom community. I mean, it says that they, each person shared with others and received from others that they sold property and possessions. And remember, they owned homes and they continued to meet in homes, so they didn't just sell their homes and like, give everything. They gave their extra. And in that time, sometimes it was hard to have extra, but they gave it. They gave it sacrificially and willingly. They sold their possessions and their properties and they distributed to them all who had need. They had a joy and a simplicity for life. They shared in meals they shared in prayers, they shared in singing and talking about who God is. And, and truly, I think that 3,120, again, maybe not specifically that number, but this large group of people developed into something fascinating and potentially controversial. One big family. And I don't know how big your family is, but I know some of us come from big families. And when you come from a really big family, you don't look at the stuff in the family, like the furniture, the food, or the clothes, as mine or theirs. Am I right? Yes, some, some of you in big families are like, mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> Who took my pants? Not your pants, just community <laughs> pants. And we nervously laugh. But it was a big family. They didn't see each other's stuff they didn't see their stuff as theirs. Their possessions didn't possess them. And I think in our day and age, how this hits me is, you know, one of my most valuable commodities is time. Now, for some of you, it might be money. For some of you, it might be relationships. But I would just encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit, God, am I genuinely and generously sharing what's most dear to me. 
what I cling to or am grasping for. Because here's what happened in this community. When they did this, and I think when any kingdom community, any church does this both then and now, what they discover when they give generously is that their minds are changed, their attitudes are changed. They willingly and graciously find something happen inside of them when they contribute to someone else. When we don't do this, we become focused on our own preferences and possessions, and we're not just in danger of being greedy, we're in danger of losing our joy. Um, And because I totally forgot something, Jack, would you grab my backpack back there and run it up here really fast? Because here's what happens when it works. Uh, Matthew started our service reading this scripture that said, I have told you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Thank you. And when we share, sometimes we don't understand the value it has. But as a community, we, uh, we had a prayer and play and planning time two weeks ago, and we talked about how God was moving in our lives to reach out and to call us to reach out, and we're like, but you know, we're, we're only this big and we don't have this all this time, and we really want people to experience what we've just been talking about today, about sharing with one another and living in this relationship. And then we looked at all the things that we put on the board that we were thinking about and dreaming about, and we looked at all the ways we were reaching out, and one of those ways was a thing called Armful of Love. And it's where we uh, raise money, we buy presents for people in need, and uh, we work with an organization who then pairs those up. Well, one of the, and, and sometimes those families know that we helped, but we don't often know those families. Uh, but one of those families found out that we helped, and were so touched by our generosity that they wrote us, and they said thank you. And I thought, oh, that was very nice. Uh, it was neat to see how they were impacted. And then I received another letter just last week, and had, uh, it had donation in there. And uh, this lady named Michelle, who I think is pretty cute, who put this all together because I'm married to her, she said, or this family said, Dear Michelle, at Christmas time, you and your wonderful congregation helped our family in a time of need, and we are so grateful. We have some extra money from our tax return, and we would like it to, to make a donation to you in hopes that it can help someone else in their time of need, just like you so kindly helped us. Could you please forward this to the person who takes care of donations and offerings and make sure it gets in the right hands? I trust that you will use it like you helped us. Thank you and God bless. See, when we joyfully and generously share, we have no idea the impact. I don't know if this family will ever set foot in our doors, but you know what I know? I know that they have a picture of Jesus through this experience that can never be changed. Just ask the Holy Spirit as we close what it looks like 
for your life, not in a should way, but in a way that says, when I understand who Jesus is, when I receive the Spirit, I get a new heart, I get a new life. I get a new power to live out this faith. What is the Holy Spirit saying to me about boldly declaring, about radically inviting, about generously sharing in a way that could not only bless others, but maybe even grow my faith and certainly tell the world of a contagious community that not only loves each other, but truly loves the world. I think it's what the world is longing for. And as the culture moves farther away from the church, this contagious community can actually be that light that we so long to be. See, a changed life really does change communities. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this picture of this first community. And we know, God, that there were problems in the first community, that, that this wasn't just this idealistic picture. They, they overlooked people, God, and they had to work through that. They didn't always share perfectly, God. Some people lied about it, but God, you moved in and through them. You continued to love them, heal them, forgive them, and restore them so that they could be what you actually wanted the world to be and humanity to be a, a blessed creation to bless the world. So God, show us by your Holy Spirit's power what ways we need to join with you and how we need to be transformed. And then by your power, God, would you do that work? And would you tell our mind and our body and our spirit and the people around us of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.